Welcome to the Digital Forester podcast, where we talk to foresters about how they are using digital technologies in their day-to-day forestry work. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome to the Digital Forester podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Matt Russell. He's the president and CEO of Arbor Custom Analytics. How are you doing, Matt? Great, Kevin. How are you? Good, good. Doing very well. I probably caught you off guard. I put the doctor in front of your name because most of the stuff I've seen is just Matt, Matt. And as I kind of looked at your background more, I'm like, hey, this dude's got a PhD. It's like, oh, he's been doing a lot of analytics and taught and 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 bounced around from different universities. And, and I believe you're back in Maine now. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, back here. And uh, well, some people call it vacation land, but uh, yeah, the state of Maine is a great place to be. Absolutely. Absolutely. So maybe to kick things off, um, maybe share with us your journey in forestry, because I know you, you did forestry in undergrad, and I believe you, you went to Virginia Tech for that master's, PhD at UMaine, even you Minnesota for a, a stint of teaching and research. But maybe walk us through that journey of how you started in forestry, what got you going, and then that journey through academia, because obviously, you are, I don't believe you're in academia now, you're running Arbor Custom Analytics. So maybe give our, our our audience a sense of your background and how you came to be where you are today. Yeah, I think uh, you know my experiences. I don't think is very unlike what many of how many of us get into forestry. You know, always love the outdoors. Um, I grew up in upstate New York, where hiking and hunting in the Hudson Valley was was my thing. And um, you know, I met a few foresters. I actually worked for a logger when I was in high school and early part of college and uh, got to learn about, you know, why we're harvesting trees and what's the value of trees and, and all that. And uh, as a part of that was asking around, you know, some of the foresters we worked with. And uh, I was like, well, where do you go to school for this? And they said, well, you can go to two places. If you want to stay in New York, you can go to SUNY ESF, which is in Syracuse, or you can go to a little school, Paul Smith's college, which is in the middle of the Adirondacks. And there's not much around other than, you know, acres and acres of woods. And so I was like, I'm sold uh, going to the Adirondacks. And that was really uh, where I started my forestry journey and uh, a number of years there and uh, then couldn't get it out of my skin. So yeah, as you mentioned, went to Virginia Tech for my master's uh, up here to University of Maine for my PhD and out to Minnesota for a number of years after that. Wow. Wow. And was there a a thread that unified grad school in terms of areas of research or, or was it a journey of discovery and figuring out what aspects of forest management, ecology, quantitative, I'm assuming there's an element of quantitative there, but, but was there a unifying thread across uh, the different degrees? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's always been about the, you know, the numbers behind forestry, you know, forest measurements, forest analytics, um, and I, I actually, you know, I never was really into math much, you know, as a, you know, high school and, you know, in my college years, but um, one of the, the uh, work study jobs I had when I was an undergrad was to do some tutoring. Um, and so one of the students, uh, you know, I got assigned to tutor someone in forest measurements. And so I was like, oh, that's, that's really cool. Cause usually you get stuck with the tutoring jobs for like, you know, the biology 101 or chemistry 101. And it's like, well, those are, you know, you know, certainly important science fields, but not ones that I was really intrigued about. So I thought, oh, awesome. I get to tutor about forest measurements. And so, you know, I got to break open the Avery and Burkhart book and started going through that and just realized how much I love the, the measurement side of forestry. And so I didn't really know who to, who to reach out to, you know, in terms of, you know, where to study for your grad program. Um, only, you know, the person whose book I read, that was uh, Dr. Harold Burkhart, um, who was down at Virginia Tech. And so, uh, yeah, not really knowing anything about how to apply for grad school or get into grad school. Went down during my spring break to Blacksburg uh, that last year of my undergrad and and talked to Dr. Burkhart and said, you know, I'm really interested in this. And he said, oh, that's that's great. We found a match. And little did I know, like most people did all that like months ago, you know, <laughs> when they were, you know, applying to grad school. And so I kind of went about it more of an informal way. But um, yeah, that, that side of... Uh, you know, connecting the trees and numbers together was really, has always been what I value in terms of forestry. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I, I you mentioned spring break. I was thinking, the last time I checked, Blacksburg didn't have a Daytona beach. So the fact that you're doing that visit on spring break, uh, it probably just speaks to you as a person curious and maybe not charting the the same path as as the institutions often say. So, so often, very cool, like, you know, well-known name, uh, uh, Dr. Burkhart's work and then Maine kind of presented itself did that was that a natural progression of hey I finished my master's at Virginia Tech 
Um, and then now I'm, I'm going to go straight to the PhD. Was that always the, the game plan? Yeah, well, actually, first, uh, as I was finishing up my master's degree, there was an advertisement for a forest data management position um, with the Cooperative Forestry Research Unit, which is a really well-known, uh, has been around for a long time, an industry and university research cooperative that does a lot of great research and work uh, in the area of forestry. And what they've done was they basically were around for 30, 40 years, and they had no one to really take a sense of, you know, what are, just what's all the data that we have? We know that, you know, like many projects done in academia, you know, kind of faculty do them, and then the data just sit with the faculty member, that faculty member retires, and who knows where the data goes after that. And so that was a really cool, you know, it was a short-term job for a year or, or 16 months, and, you know, I got to work with a lot of data sets, and as I was doing that, my advisor at, at Maine was just getting up and going, and he basically said, you know, well, you're working with all this data. Why don't you put it to some use and, uh, you know, use some of it as a part of a PhD program. And so I thought, you know, the stars really align there. And so it just made a lot of sense to kind of transition from that job to, to the PhD program. And so everything worked out really well. Yeah, very cool. And then you ended up at U Minnesota for quite, quite a few years, right? I think like eight or so years, so quite a long time. Was that tied to a research project or is that more a uh, stepping stone? Like, were you thinking of going full-blown academia I'm, I'm partially dying to know this answer because i always joke you know some of us go to the dark side we don't go into the ivory towers um but but what was the U minnesota stint there and and what was that that moment where you said you know what i'm, I'm gonna come and launch uh, arbor custom analytics yeah yeah what brought me to minnesota was uh was really a postdoc um working with the u.s forest service uh the forest inventory analysis group as a part of my PhD, I did a little bit of work looking at understanding and modeling deadwood dynamics to get a sense of, you know, we've got thousands of equations and we know so much about live trees, but what happens when they die? And certainly from a carbon perspective, uh, we have a lot of unknowns. And so my postdoc there was uh, really focused on that and uh, had a great job, a great deal of work working on that project. And then uh, not long after that, there was a faculty position that opened at University of Minnesota, and I was fortunate to get that. And, and for that work, I really focused on forest ecosystem health. So I kind of brought in, you know, the quantitative side of forestry and how can we use modeling and um, different visualizations to understand what's going on in our forests, you know, as we think about climate change, as we think about insects and diseases that are disturbing our forests on a, on a regular basis, how can we use data and analytics to, to really understand that? So yeah, I was in a, a faculty position for about eight years. And um, before I kind of ventured into my my own private consulting work, um, and so yeah, haven't haven't looked back ever since. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Congrats, and 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 so one of the things I know a lot of uh, people in the audience will say, well, recently you've been talking to a lot of people with PhDs. Is is that a requirement to be on the podcast? I'm like, no, it just seems to be the luck of the draws. I'm I'm reaching out and talking to interesting people. Many of you seem to have that advanced graduate uh, studies, and 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 this is going to be a treat. Um, to have our conversation because looking at the um, Arbor Custom Analytics website, there's blogs. You uh, do um, you know a lot of writing to share your thoughts. You even have your own podcast. So kudos, kudos to you as as two people running podcasts. Uh, they're fun to do. They take time, but they're a great way to give back to the community. So shout outs to you for for doing that and encourage a lot of people to just Google Arbor Custom Analytics. You'll find some of that stuff. But in that research of who you are and, and what you do one of the conclusions i drew is there's a really broad breadth of of topics that you cover and 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 we'll see that in the conversation because i'm going to poke you in the blockchain world uh, uh of of things but um to start off with what what's the core business of arbor custom analytics for for our audience if they were to give you know matt a call and say hey i need help what are those areas that that you specialize in and offer services that that would be a benefit to the community and industry? Yeah, so the work that I do is really in support of forestry companies and organizations with data and analytics needs. Um, and I, the word I, the word custom, I think, is really something that I value because it seems like every project or everything that we do in forestry, you know, we can't just use some software that's out there and plug in your numbers, plug in your data, and then just press go. Um, it's a lot more customizable work. And so that's that's a word I really value in the kind of work that I do. And so most of what keeps me busy, you know, obviously forest carbon is a big thing on topic um, within forestry companies and organizations nowadays. Um, you know, as new forest carbon markets are emerging, 
as landowners look to enroll their lands or think about the pros and cons of enrolling their lands, uh, wanting to you know potentially purchase timberlands for carbon markets and some of the other attributes, not just the timber, uh, which obviously has been historically you know what what many in, in forestry have have really valued in forests. And so, uh, forest carbon assessment, more broadly, forest resource assessments in general. Um, you know, here, you know, I sit in the U.S., we have a great national forest inventory uh, with the forest inventory and analysis program. And so uh, you do a lot of work, you know, using those data sets in support of, you know, trying to get a sense of, well, we're thinking about planting a mill or we're thinking about wanting to get a sense of, you know, where's, you know, what's our woodshed look like relative to what we're using as a, as a species. And so we've got a great data set. Uh, as a part of our national forest inventory that can really answer those questions. Um, and so that's, that's really some data I, I work a lot with. And obviously people are concerned with wanting to know what the forest will look like in the future. Um, and so we do a lot of um, growth and yield modeling, statistical analyses, you know, creating new equations to help refine some estimates of tree volume, biomass and things like that in support for, uh, for work that companies need. Very cool, very cool, and, and lots of lots of topics in there. We'll be able to to, to deep dive and, and go into our conversation together. So maybe a broad question I'll, I'll start off with is around the the force, like the carbon market side of things. What are we doing right, and and what are we maybe not doing quite as well as we could do from from your seat? Because again, you're you're a numbers guy, right? You're looking at the data, the data. Can't lie. Um, there's folks taking different approaches to to monitoring the verification. Um, it, it's quite, as the layperson, nebulous in terms of once you start going down this hole of of carbon, it can go in so many different different ways. But what do you think's working, and and where do you see rooms for improvement from your seat as you look at the data itself? Yeah, I think in terms of what's working, one of the things that I think really in recent years has come to be is that there's just a lot more opportunities for landowners um, to enroll and to think about carbon and to really, you know, play a role in the climate change future, you know, of our, of our kit, of our country, of our, or really of our, our globe. And so I think really the, the democratization, you, you might say, of some of these forest carbon markets is a good thing. Um, just giving the, providing accessibility and providing those markets to people that otherwise, you know, wouldn't be able to enroll, you know. In the U.S., we have the the California Air Resources Board helps to um, they have a great program that you know enrolls lands and, and projects, but historically it's been really only the large landowners, and so there's no reason why someone with you know 60 acres um, that they that they have their home on couldn't enroll their lands, and so that's what I think we're really doing right is we're opening it up to a lot more people. I think in terms of areas of improvement, um, you know, it's certainly the the data, you know, some of the equations that we use for understanding biomass and carbon haven't really changed in the last 20 years. Um, and so when you think about, you know, some of the estimates that we're providing, you know, they're the same estimates we were providing 20 years ago, um, you know, and maybe there were different, differently uh, sized forests, but um, I think there's still a lot of opportunities to really refine some of the estimates we have with our carbon equations, you know, things that we use to, to develop and, and to estimate and uh, certainly with uncertainty. Um, how much carbon is out there and how much might be contributing to a project um, as a part of that. And so I think there's two been, you know, there's always concern about the, not just the amount of carbon credits, but the quality of them, uh, you know? And so I think that's something that's really gotten a lot of, um, uh, just a lot of uh, critique in, in recent years is understanding, okay, where are those carbon credits coming from? And if you're planting trees, where are you planting the trees? Or if you're doing an improved forest management project, what's really changing, what's the additionality. So I, I think that's great, you know, this increased eye toward each project in terms of uh, what's happening and what's good and, and what's not. I think there's um, always gonna be concern over the quality. And I think um, some of the improvements might be to just to continue to look at the quality of carbon credits and not just the amount of them. For sure, for sure. And, and thinking of that, Matt, like in your business, would you say, it's split 50-50 in terms of carbon-related business and growth and yield or, or other? Is it that dominating in terms of the surge in interest in carbon? Or do you still see it kind of as a, a small, not quite niche, but maybe not uh, very few applying it or maybe giving you a call-up? What can you share on that front? Do you really see a surge on that front? Yeah, I think 50-50 uh, is a, a pretty good approximation. Um, I think too, you know, 
and a lot of people will talk about kind of carbon, you know, in the broader spectrum of, you know, ESG and what that means for a company or the, you know, the environmental, social and governance structure of, you know, an organization. And so I think a lot of companies are too thinking about, you know, where does ESG fit in their portfolio and how can, you know, if we own forest land, you know, can't we just grow our forest and offset all the emissions that our company makes? And so uh, there's a lot of good work to be made in that area. Uh, and that I think is going to be increasing in, in more years. But um, yeah, I mean, I think there's still, you know, if you think about the forest carbon stuff, maybe it wasn't here as much 10 years ago as widespread in the forestry community. Um, it's certainly a, a popular thing that people want answers on today, but there are still, I work with a lot of people that still want basic questions answered. Like, you know, what's the volume going to be in our forest in 20 years? Um, and for that, we need good data, you know, to input, you know, into forest growth and yield models. We need to have a good sense about you know, how confident are we in those results? And, you know, if you want to, you know, do more inventories, you know, how can we do that, you know, uh, effectively and efficiently with the resources that they have? And so that I kind of see as the core forestry work that I don't really think is going anywhere. Uh, we're still going to need good data on our forests because we rely on those data for some of these newer things like forest carbon assessments, like ESG pro portfolio um, protocols and things like things like that. So I think all of it really relies on the just the quality of data that a company is working with. Yeah, for sure. And so as someone who's who's written over 80 peer-reviewed articles and, and even two books, you obviously know maybe just a wee little bit about this topic of, of uh, uh, equations and those being used. And, and as you know, a lot of remote sensing projects, especially on the inventory side now, whether spaceborne or airborne LIDAR or you name it, whatever flavor, um, there's always boots on the grounds. And as you pointed out, there's some equation that is being used to flip what's being measured into something and then at the plot level and then putting it to the pixel or maybe at the tree um, and going to the stand or the track level, whatever jargon, depending what jurisdiction you are. Are we doing it wrong? Do you like to come back to your comment around the equations where a lot of people are still using the same ones? You know, I remember using ones that were like 50 years old none the wiser as as whether they worked or not as opposed to hey the the coefficient of determination looks pretty good you know it's 0.82 so it must be uh awesome but beyond that no real thought into where that equation came from do you sense that that we're at a inflection point where we need to ask those questions around the source of those equations the the vintage, the 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 pedigree, if that's the right word, of these equations. What are you seeing based on on your work? Can we increase the precision of some of these inventories by looking at what source equations we're using? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah. There's definitely um, uh, if you if you dig in, you know, you read a report on you know a forced carbon project and they're they're doing something. If you really dig down deep, yeah, you'll find what, what those equations are that they're using. Um, but honestly, now it's like, you know, it doesn't matter so much, you know, the equations that we're using, but it matters how we bring all the data together to talk to one another. And just like you said, you know, with enhanced forest inventories where, you know, the, the plots on the ground are, are a major component of what we might do, but it's, you know, how can we get some, whether it's LIDAR or imagery from Landsat, if we're looking to, to go backwards in time or something, you know, how can we kind of get those data to talk to one another? And from a modeling perspective, you know, increasing a lot of the models that we do, some people don't even really call it statistics, you know, because we're doing more of um, what some people will call the black box models, you know, things like random forests or other um, machine learning technologies that are non-parametric in their design. So um, you don't necessarily know what the parameters are that you're, that you're dealing with in many of those models. So um, it's funny, I remember being at a conference uh, when I was a grad student, um, Forest Menstruationist Conference, and this was pretty early on when people were just starting to use random forests as a tool to understand, um, you know, and really to bring it into the forestry profession. But uh, there must have been like four or five talks, mostly by grad students, you know, talking about how they use random forests, and they did this and came up with this result. And then finally, someone toward the end of the conference raised their hand and said, what's random forests anyway? <laughs> um, <laughs> And so uh, fast forward now, you know, maybe 10 years later and, you know, it's just widespreadly, it's so widespread and, and used very often just because, you know, you know, I kind of use that technique, kind of this more machine learning based algorithm just to get a sense of what I should be looking at. You know, I'm still, you know, I still like to fit equations, like that's kind of the core of me, but I'll often use a tool like random forest to get a sense about, okay, which variable should I be looking at first? that might be predicting something that I'm interested in, whether that be biomass or volume or carbon um, or something. So, yeah, I think the, um, 
the ability to kind of use those different techniques, not just, you know, your traditional linear regression, you know, um, on data measured through time, you know, those are really going to be the, the key things in the future is just getting all these data to talk to one another using some of these more advanced techniques. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great point. And it's, it's ironic that when folks in forestry hear random forest, they, they naturally conclude that a forester came up with this. And in reality, I think it's from the, the medical field that uh, the random forest, the forest are actually a function of, of the methodology versus anything to do with actual uh, trees. But that's, that's a good segue to my next question, because as someone who's obviously statistically trained, understands the science of statistics intimately well, uh, as well as some of the machine learning techniques, you, you kind of brought up the black box. And that's something we often hear from foresters saying, like, I, I don't care about this machine learning thing. It's a black box. Like, I need to be able to explain what is happening in this growth and yield model or something else. I like how you said, you know, I'm using, you're using the machine learning to help maybe guide you in, in looking at which variables you might use in some of your parametric modeling. But I also know there's a lot of people who do parametric modeling first and then use the machine learning then as the final uh, model because they can provide that explanation to maybe those, those people who are looking for um, um, more guts versus saying, hey, it's a black box. I couldn't tell you beyond goes in and spits something out and it's accurate. It's good. But where do you see in your seat right now? Is it really a question around one is the one is better than the other? Um, because some might argue the machine learning is better than the parametric approaches. It removes some of the needs for some of the assumptions um, associated with parametric um, modeling, whether it's from just sampling to building the models um, themselves. But do you see the world in forestry with, with some of that growth and yield work you're doing shifting away from the traditional and starting to embrace some of the new, or do you think it's just a sector that, hey, we always need to explain the relationship with these variables. Otherwise, it'll just never jive with the the forest industry. Where where do you see the world going with with AI and and uh, machine learning? Yeah, it's it's a great question. Um, I mean, I think there's just um, a lot of opportunities with you know AI and machine learning and all these new new ways of understanding. Um, but I'll tell you, you know, in the forestry world, a lot of people, you know, just don't really care how you get the answer as long as you, as long as you get an answer that's pretty good to what the value should be or what they anticipate the value should be. Um, and so that's not to say that, you know, we shouldn't we shouldn't care about how we do our modeling. Uh, but just the reality is, you know, OK, you know, if, if you come up with a great way to you know, predict something happening or, or not predict it well, you know, that's going to be really important to us as a company or, um, you know, to be within plus or minus. 10% of the true value uh, is important. So I definitely think that, um, that th there, there's that sentiment across, you know, in our discipline, you know, uh, and you don't necessarily need to explain everything to the people you're talking with. Um, but that ability that you definitely need to, if you're the one developing those models to justify the use of them uh, and everything. And I think now, I mean, there's so many great ways to, um, to more easily do the machine learning and, you know, the, the, the AI tools seem like they're becoming more and more abundant and even like user interfaces. And um, uh, there's a lot more ways to kind of go about it rather than trying to, okay, here's my data set. Let me fit the, fit the linear regression and, and see what comes out on the other end. So, yeah, I mean, any, any student that's in forestry today that especially wants to get in the quantitative side, definitely, you know, be taking those classes, you know, in the random forest, non-parametric statistics, uh, those are just going to be incredibly valuable into the future. For sure, for sure. And 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 thinking of that as uh, this being the Digital Forester podcast, everyone's interested in tools. Um, so what's the toolkit that Dr. Matt Russell uses? Are you a open sourcey guy? Are you a closed source commercial? Don't really care? Or 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 where do you stand on that? The first question. And then based on that, what's the toolkit you, you use to to do all your ninja voodoo magic statistical AI uh, uh, work? Yeah, well, I'm definitely a big proponent of open source. Um, you know, I'm pretty much R is open every day on my computer. Um, that's kind of my go-to for uh, doing all my analytical work. Um, and, uh, you know, I've increasingly been trying to push a lot more of that to GitHub, you know, GitHub being a shared repositories, you know, to share code and to, you know, be able to work on others' programs and, and code sets and, you know, update things. And that seems to have been taking, taking the, the world of computer programming, you know, by storm really the last 10 years. And I think it's just starting to creep into 
uh, to the forestry world. I think a lot of a lot of folks are doing that. So, um, yeah, not to say I don't don't use the proprietary software. You know, I do do use those when I have to. I, I still have some SAS script I run now and then to, um, you know, that's where I first learned statistics on was using SAS. And I think there's a lot of value in kind of not kind of going all in on one, you know, tool, but to have at your disposal, lots of different ones to choose from and, um, and all that. But for me, R is my go-to for all my analytics. Very cool. Very cool. And, and thinking of that, just more curiosity from this guy, it's like you mentioned early on getting into the quantitative side. So what's where was it hard for you to learn scripting or is that something that just came naturally as a data numbers guy? The 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 syntax of, of the scripting language just just spoke to you? Yeah, not. To, I mean, I think for me, you know, I really caught on to programming and coding once I attach it to data. Um, and that is to say, like, I do remember, like, one of my undergrad classes, we had to do some coding, and it wasn't really, like, we were doing these for loops and do loops, and it wasn't really, like, sure what, like, data, like, why are we applying this in life? Um, but for me, you know, learning statistics and doing coding, like, once I realized, like, okay, here's a, you know, forest inventory, went out and collected 10 plots, and, you know, we're going to go summarize that data in the field, you know, that's where it really clicked for me, so... Um, otherwise, you know, programming just wasn't much interest of me. And uh, until I kind of connected it really to the forest, then it really kind of all made sense. And, you know, I could tie that to understanding, okay, yeah, if we want to you know, do a simulation of this, of this forest inventory to come up with, I don't know, a bootstrapped estimate of, uh, of, of uh, tree volume per acre or something, well, you need to do some coding and some programming for that. So that's what made it click for me. Very cool. Very cool. So I'm going to take you down a path and I'm, I'm pretty pumped to do this because I think you're, you're one of the, the guys I can, I can do this on, on the podcast, not to say other previous guests could not, but again, just given your quantitative background and some of the things I've read or, or you've written that I, that I've read, um, it sounds like given, given the work you've done, the books you've published, there's some, there's some tests and, and or exercises, I should say, maybe not tests, but exercises that that one can go through and, and see how they rank and whether they learn the topics well and, and i believe recently you 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 asked uh like it's in the news chat gpt um you asked chat gpt to see if it could pass your ex exercises and i believe you reported that chat gpt i won't say failed maybe like you know below 50 percent, but it doesn't sound like it also knocked it out of its park so I'm curious to know first if you could introduce for our audience what ChatGPT is, and then and then two, it's like what was the experiment you did to 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 see if the the large language learning model, the LLM that is known as ChatGPT, what what it did with your your forestry force measurement exercises. Yeah, so ChatGPT, if if you haven't heard in the news, it's. Uh developed by OpenAI, a, a company that's, you know, really doing artificial intelligence, really at the cutting edge. Um, and it's basically a, a chat bot, a really, really smart chat bot. And so you type in, you know, whatever you want answered, and it spits back to you, you know, using artificial intelligence, scraping the web, you know, a detailed response. And so I know a lot of people are concerned, you know, especially teachers that, you know, well, eighth graders can just go in, type in their, their homework assignment, and then it gives the answer, you know, write a 500 word essay about, I don't know, someone and then it spits out the answer and so a lot of people are concerned about that and there's been you know rules and people outlawing it and some people embracing it um but so what i did was i, I didn't realize up, up until a little while ago that you can actually it does programming for you uh, and so you can basically tell it to write me a script that um, calculates the area of a circle and then um, replicates that five thousand times and and spit me out the mean value of the areas of different size circles uh, and so we can write that really in, in, in a lot of different programming languages and so um so I, I recently published a book last year uh called statistics and natural resources applications in r and it's a pretty introductory uh statistics textbook mostly for for undergraduate and graduate students as well um that um really focuses on you know it has some data sets on natural resources forestry wildlife data sets um, and kind of as you work through the textbook, there are exercises at the end of each section. And so what I was curious was like, I was really, I really wanted to know, like, can ChatGBT answer these questions? And um, sure enough, like I basically put them in just almost word for word. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll put in, you know, hey, ChatGBT, uh, write me R script that calculates the mean value from this data set found in um, found in this package. And it does it. Um, there are some weird things that it provided, like, uh, 
some of the things like units that it provided for some of the values, like wasn't sure what they were getting them from the web, but it wasn't the same as what was in the, uh, in the data set that, that uh, was being used. And so there's definitely some weird things that it did. Um, but on the whole, like it probably would have passed, you know, if I gave a, if I gave a test, you know, with those exercises in the book. And I know that other folks have found, I think, I can't remember, but they asked ChatGPT to take the SATs and scored like a 1280, I think, which would get you into a lot of good colleges and universities. So, um, so yeah, I think it's definitely something that should be on the mind of, uh, first of all, all of us in society. And you know, I think the, uh, the ways that that can influence all of the work that we do, you know, both personally and professionally is going to have a major impact. Um, but also, especially those in programming, like um, just be aware of that, you know, there's a tool like that that exists that you can, you know, send code to or find other ways to write your, your code or to debug your code. I think it could be potentially a useful tool into the future. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely, uh, you, you can have a lot of fun with ChatGPT asking it really mundane, uh, dumb questions and get fascinating responses back, but but you're absolutely right. And I know a lot of folks who listen to this podcast often will say, you know, like, oh, here we go. It's like, are we trying to get rid of boots on the ground again, right? Diminish the forester's role or job. And, and always, I think, from the get-go with these technologies, it's never about getting rid of boots on the ground, but maybe tweaking how those boots are, are used on the ground. But this is one that's quite interesting because if you can ask it a question or prompt it to come up with a set of instructions, could you go so far as to say, hey, I've got this robot. Can you measure every single tree that's greater than nine centimeters DBH and measure the height as well and and just let this thing rip? I, I don't know. It'd be curious to to see what happened so so i thought that was pretty funny when you ran the test i'm like hey it didn't get 100 percent, and then uh you know what it found maybe there's some some merit in it who who knows so super cool so definitely encourage our our uh our, our audience to one take a look at the book you've written especially if if people are using r and comfortable with r any data scientists um check that book out but also check out chat gpt so the other topic i wanted to 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 pick your brain. I know a lot of people say, stop saying pick your brain. It doesn't sound right, but I, I literally want to pick your brain on this front, but um, DAOs, or or for those who don't know what the term is, decentralized autonomous organizations. I haven't gone on the the, the crypto spiel spout in quite a few podcasts, uh, mostly because given current, uh, current uh, markets with anything from FTX to Celsius to Voyager, if you are truly into crypto, Maybe uh, you're in, you're you're dealing with some pain, so we just avoid that. But this is one that's interesting in the sense of moving away from crypto, but the blockchain itself, and how blockchains can be used for other use cases other than purely crypto. And and you publish a blog, and and I hadn't seen it before, and, and I thought this is so cool um, about a DAO that bought land in the U.S. Um, by raising or selling non-fungible tokens to people that were living around the world. But these folks, these 6,000 or so NFT holders now own physical land. I, I can't remember if it's Wyoming or somewhere, but maybe for our listeners, uh, what are your thoughts on blockchains and what do they mean for forestry? And given this example of, of people around the world buying NFTs for physical forest land, does that excite you? Does that scare the bejesus out of you? Or do you think that's just the natural progression of where this world's going? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for bringing this up. But I do think it's something that anyone that deals with land management or land ownership needs to have in mind. Um, that is these uh, decentralized autonomous organizations. I think, I, and I am no expert, don't don't cite me about your ideas for crypto, but um, I've, I'm kind of, it feels like I'm on the sidelines just eating the popcorn, watching everything that's going down with with crypto. But um, I think if, you, if you're here and you listen to a lot of the, the big people in finance, you know, uh, certainly there's a lot of uh, big people that, uh, you know, CEOs of major banks that, you know, don't, don't want anything to do with crypto and the currency aspects of it. Um, but they won't say that about the blockchain technology. Uh, they'll say the blockchain technology is, is absolutely perfect. Like, like we were, you know, a lot of major banks are starting to run on some of those technologies. And so, yeah, what really intrigued me actually first was I read this book called The Metaverse. Um, and this was by Matthew Ball. And it's really, it was really eye-opening to me, you know, and I don't, you know, I don't know much about virtual reality and, and all that, but he has a sort short section in there where he describes, you know, this, 
these decentralized autonomous organizations and this land in Wyoming that a group basically got together and purchased 40 acres of land um, using this blockchain technology through the sale, as you mentioned, Kevin, of these non-fungible tokens. And um, I thought, man, that's that's really interesting because, you know, one of the things um, that we know in forestry, not necessarily for the big, you know, the corporate landowners or, or the public landowners, but really for the smaller, um, you know, we call them non-industrial private landowners, we know that lots of those lands are, you know, there's not just one owner and one decision maker on those forest lands. There's many, you know, up time, you know, dozens at some point. Um, and so one of the big things about the, the DAOs that's ongoing is that, you know, this idea of the collective decision-making can happen uh, based on being a part of this blockchain technology. And I thought, well, that's really cool. And there's a lot of parallels to what we do in forestry, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, certainly for the small, smaller private landowners where, you know, there's multiple families uh, that maybe have a stake or multiple people within those families have a stake in the land. And that ought to, as I got kind of digging into it more, that really ought to be something that we should at least think about in the forestry space, particularly when you think about carbon markets um, and when you think about, you know, the, the decentralization that's going on there a, a little bit uh, in terms of trying to open up and uh, provide carbon market opportunities to all landowners. I think this idea of looking to DAOs and this blockchain technology ought to be something that we look into as, as foresters. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 100 percent, 100 percent. Totally agree with you. It's it's a it's a fascinating future as you start commingling these different technologies from other spaces and, and seeing how they they could could stick. Now, as we look forward, um, and, and it's a fascinating conversation. We can go all over the place. Um, another theme that that you've talked about, and I'm curious to know your thoughts on because it's it's one that I I I, I remember speaking about several years ago and. And I, I'm pretty sure I got laughed out of the room, which is which is normally the norm for this guy. I, I speak these things and people are like, yeah, whatever, not a chance. Ha ha, get out of here. Um, and and yet through time, not to say I'm right all the time, but through time, some of these ideas come back. And, and one of those terms that I, I came across was the citizen data scientist. We hear about democratization of of this and that. We 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 talk about uh, volunteer geographic information VGI if you're coming from the GIS space. But but this the citizen data scientist. What does that mean to you? And 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 what's the power behind this this concept as it relates to to data science and, and forestry? Yeah, that's another interesting one. I think. Um... You know, when you look at the history of like, you know, how forestry organizations are structured, um, oftentimes it's like all the analytical people in one department or, you know, all the, the numbers people in one department and, uh, you know, the land management people in another and certainly the, you know, more corporate uh, positions, you know, in another. And so it's always kind of been distributed like that. Um, but I think the idea of citizen data science, you know, is just the, the opportunity to uh, incorporate more viewpoints into the the delivery and the development of a data product. Um, and so with that, you know, you can imagine, you know, I think what it means for us as forces is it's not just the analytical people building their tools and then giving it to the land managers, but the land managers actually have a say in how those tools are developed. What kind of products, you know, how does it look? How does it feel? What kind of data might feed it? Um, I think that's another way that really opens up and really um, provides access to um, to everyone in the organization to be, to have a stake in what the, the product is. And I think that's really important because, you know, oftentimes, you know, and, and perhaps you've been a part of these projects too, Kevin, it's like, well, you develop something that's a really, really good tool that the analytical team thinks is perfect. And then you go out and it's just not adopted, you know, out there by your land managers or your foresters because the foresters say, oh, well, you should have really done this, you know, from the start. And then, you know, it would have been a perfect tool. We would have used it right away. And so, I think that idea of, you know, having, you know, so-called citizens being a part of the data science process is just a great one because you don't want to develop a tool that's not going to be used. And the earlier feedback you get into the development of a product is just going to make that product better in the long run. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Now, obviously you've developed a lot of tools. Is there an experience more closer to heart where you can say, you know, I put all my best intentions, my passion, like tons of effort into this tool. And then it didn't quite reach that adoption and only for you to find out, yeah, you didn't add an extra button or or they really wanted okay instead of next. Any fun stories from from your experiences in that space? Yeah, no, I think a lot of it, um, 
and maybe not necessarily with the tools, but, um, you know, I think a lot of like the writing that I do, like I love to write and um, I try to write pretty regularly, but a lot of the writing I do, like I'll, I'll have an idea for something. I think, yeah, a lot of people are going to like this, are going to catch on. Uh, you know, I think this has a lot of potential, whereas other things, you know, it's like, I'm going to write this on a Friday afternoon and, you know, it's going to be, you know, going to go out there and like, I don't care if anyone really reads it, but then a lot of people latch onto it and really read it. So, um, yeah, it's always surprising, you know, I guess nothing specific comes to mind, but it's always surprising what does catch on and what doesn't. (laughs) Um, and really, I mean, I think there's, you can think about everything, you know, every product or tool that's developed is there's a distribution to it where either have wide adoption or no adoption and some of that you can anticipate and some of it you can't. So, um, I think it's all about kind of how you, how you sell the product, how you market the product and, and all of that. So, um, yeah. so yeah, lot, lots goes into that. I think. Yeah, for sure. I, I love that in the sense as, as a content creator, if we use that term, you are doing that with, with all the different channels that you're, you're sharing information and, and, and truthfully, some of the topics we talked about comes from that, 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 that treasure chest of different themes. And, and the last theme I want to maybe kind of get your thoughts on in the time that we have left together is one that I've heard repeatedly as I've talked with different people, and it has to do with the workforce, whether the workforce is aging and people don't want to be forcers. Um, maybe there's not enough investment into, um, maybe grassroots isn't the right word, but that younger get them early, I guess, in the educational system and train them. I know I hear stories from different groups where their starting point was maybe a ranger camp or, or some type of experience. And, and those programs are largely uh, have already dried up or, or the last few that are around are, are, are kind of going the way of the, 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 the dinosaur. But one of the things that, that you talked about in some of your writing is, is, is literally, I'll just look at my notes. It's the, the H2B workers. And I, and I, I assume not, I'm up in uh, Canada here. So, so uh, I'm sure we don't have the equivalent, but I assume it's a, a work visa. But I think the in your writings, the part that I took, took away that was really interesting was that you wrote that 2% of advertised forestry jobs were filled by American workers and, and only 2%. So I'm curious to know and, and see if I can pull different threads together from other people I've talked to. Uh, this is a real issue from, you know, basic forestry field work to truck drivers. I know of you, you've written in research about wages and whatnot, but to what extent is this a real issue in the, the, the forestry industry? Is this something we need to pay attention to now or we should have paid attention to it 10 years ago, 20 years ago, but where do things sit from, from your seat based on, on your research and outlook? Yeah, I think the workforce is a, is a big issue that I think we're faced with. And increasingly, like when I talk to companies, you know, it's not, certainly they have challenges with, you know, their operations or with their data. And that's what I help out with. But the thing that they most say is their biggest problem is the people, you know, they can't recruit people, you know, especially in rural areas, you know, to work at mills or to drive trucks to, to deliver wood to those mills. Um, they can't recruit, you know, even forest scientists, you know, we have data in the U.S. that says our, our forest research capacity in terms of the number of scientists has declined by 12% over the last uh, 10 years or so. And so that's a, that's a big concern as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's just an incredible amount, you know, from all levels, from people planting trees to people, you know, doing the science on, on those tree plantings. And yeah, I see that as really a big, a big issue that I think the forestry community is going to have to you know, reckon with here in, in the near future. You know, the work on the H-1B visas, uh, you know, is just an important one. You know, we're increasingly finding, you know, fewer and fewer, you know, teenagers want to go out and plant trees for a summer. And so what the United States does is they rely on this guest worker program not immigrants they're just guest workers for a short period of time to do things like the tree planting and the vegetation management and, and things like that and, and there's been a lot of organizations that have been advocating for more of that uh the, those guest workers to be done because we just need it you know when you think about all of the initiatives like the trillion tree initiative like uh some of these wide widespread efforts to plant more trees it's like, well, who's going to be doing all those tree planting uh, efforts? You know, it's certainly not going to be the, the high schooler, you know, in their summer vacation. And so, you know, we need to be realistic about, you know, who's actually um, going to be doing all this work. And same thing with the truck drivers, you know, and I know some companies have made good, good progress on this, but, you know, for us, it's like, well, 
we know that if, if a force is managed, like, you know, it, it's not going to be valued at all. And, you know, we can't support the economy and many, especially in many rural areas without, you know, uh, good management. And with that is, is truck drivers, you know, they're a big part of that, that process. And so, yeah, I've done a little bit of work kind of trying to get a sense of, okay, what for those in the logging industry, what does that look like? And what are the trends there? Uh, but I think that's another big thing, you know, when you have someone with the same set of skills, you know, why do you want to drive a truck, you know, in the woods and go back 10 miles to get the wood and, and bring it out to a small little town versus you could be driving for a big box store and, you know, be on the interstate and live a, do a comfortable drive all day. Um, you know, that's hard to compete with for us in the forestry industry. So uh, yeah, there's a lot of interest in ways to try to recruit uh, drivers and, and tree planters uh, to the forestry industry. So a, a big thing that I think we're going to be reckoning with here in the future. Yeah. Well, it's amazing. I, I, I normally joke with everyone in forestry, nothing's easy. Everything is like this complex um, issue, multifaceted. Uh, and for some of us, that's why we love being in this space. So the last question or set of questions I, I have before we look to wind down is, is because this is the digital forester podcast, we always ask the folks on, on the show, uh, about technology trends and and generally we frame them as kind of a one year, three year, and then 10 year time frame. So maybe in the 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 near term, short term, what type of technologies gets you as a data scientist or a, a force analytics uh, person or whatever choice word uh, we want to use? What what gets Matt excited? And if we go so far as to look out 10 years out, which I know is like you know, eons in the technology space, but, but is there something that you're kind of gravitating to or keeping your eye on um, because it really excites you? What are your thoughts on, on those two questions? Yeah, well, I think we talked about many of them here today. Um, you know, the first, you know, next year or so, you know, I'm definitely encouraged to see kind of where the forest carbon market plays out. And um, I think the, the successful groups there are going to be the ones that are really relying heavily on the technology um, to assess, you know, forest projects and, you know, get a sense of what kind of forest carbon is there and enrolling them in markets. And so that I think is going to be interesting to see just kind of, you know, there's a lot of players in there now and, you know, will one rise to the top where they all kind of have an equitable distribution of, of all the work. And so that I think is going to be interesting. And two, I think that chat GPT and um, kind of uh, text analytics work is really in the next year going to be really insightful and I think uh, going to be really impactful in terms of how we do our everyday work. And so when you look a year or a couple of years out, that really um, is what really gets me excited. I think kind of longer term and not necessarily relying on any tools, but I think, you know, it seems like we're increasingly shortening the time between when we collect the data and when we analyze and make decisions with the data. Uh, and I think that that window in the near future, the longer term future is just going to get narrower and narrower. And so you know, someone can be out in the field and measuring the data goes back immediately. You know, you can get an estimate of, you know, carbon or volume, you know, on the spot. And, you know, there's no reason. I mean, some companies are doing that now uh, in many ways, but I think that um, it always seems like, you know, we're always planning, a, you know, because our trees grow slowly, we're always planning out in advance. Here's what we're going to inventory next year. And it's like, well, if we can inventory it now, can't we get the decision uh, that we need right now if we're, if we're out on the ground where there's boots on the ground or, or technology and uh, sensors to help us with those measurements. So I think kind of longer term, that's going to be really, really exciting to follow just kind of that narrow window between data collection and time to make decisions. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. So I know I, I keep saying it's my last question um, and, and I keep lying by asking more and more questions, but this one will be the the final question. I, I promise because I'm curious to know what your answer is. So what would you, so let's let's say uh where are we yeah so spring break is coming up now a young matt is now making the trip to wherever you are in maine with similar questions as as you once had when you went to to see dr burkhardt at, at virginia tech um what would be the piece of advice that you would give that that young matt that that would come visit you um today now that you've gone through this this incredible journey in terms of graduate school and now doing consulting work on the side and helping what sounds like a broad, uh, diverse set of clients. But is there a, a tidbit of advice you would give that, that that young forester that's coming up the ranks? 
Yeah, I think it's really to the value, you know, it's going to be a non-technology answer to a question, but <laughs> it's going to be really to value the people that you work with. Um, I think that matters a whole lot. You know, I once heard someone say that um, I wrote it down just so I remembered it, but he said that any, any analytical product doesn't move at the speed of science, but it moves at the level of trust. Um, and I think there's a lot of meaning in that because, you know, if you're developing tools and you don't have good relationships with the people that are using those tools, uh, that are going to implement those tools or the decision makers that use the products from those tools, I think that matters quite a bit. And um, you don't want to be the person that just is toiling away on their computer all day and, and making things without having those relationships to people. And so that matters so much. We're a small community in, uh, in forestry. And so, so people know people and your ability to network and to get a sense about people from all levels of your organization, what they do, what their roles are, um, is just that much more important. And it can really help you in your, in your everyday work and in terms of analytics. So I think that's really important if I were to, to tell my younger person, my younger self going on spring break, anything, that might be it. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, trust and, and the human factor always comes back to people. So, so hey, as we wind down, I love the conversation. I know I took you in left field, right field, center field, and probably back to the change room and then out to the parking lot and tried to pull you back into the 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 field there. But definitely appreciate you sharing your your thoughts. So as someone who's very active on social, and I encourage our audience, if you're curious, there's newsletters, there's blogs, but even LinkedIn newsletters that will drop right into your, your inbox or on your feeds there. Um, lots of different ways to interact with uh, Dr. Matt uh, Russell here. But what's the best way if someone's listening going like, hey, there's something I heard or, or just interested, interested in, in getting Arbor Custom Analytics to do some custom work in the spirit of, of building, starting that trust relationship. What's the best way for people to reach out to you? Is there a certain channel that you'd prefer, website, social, or email? Uh, what do you? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, LinkedIn is best for me. You know, I check that pretty much every day and um, try to post what I'm up to there. You know, I like to say that I work in public, and so um, obviously not with every project that I work on, but uh, as I like to share things with the community, I, I post it all there. And I've got a, a LinkedIn newsletter, as you mentioned, Kevin, that uh, try to provide timely things and things of relevance to get people thinking about forestry and data and to get people to, um, uh, you know, provide some education piece along with that. So yeah, LinkedIn is best. And my website is arbor-analytics.com if you want to read some of my blog posts or um, put some presentations and other things up there if you're interested in that. There you go. There you go, folks. So if you want to reach out to Dr. Matt Russell from Arbor Custom Analytics, LinkedIn is the easy way, as well as his website. So Matt, appreciate the time you're carving out to speak with this guy. Totally love the conversation. Love seeing where the world could go. And as I said, I took you left, right, center. So thanks for thanks for uh, playing along or agreeing to play along in this ping pong game of conversations. But I found it fascinating. In all honesty, I read your stuff that you, you, you post. I, I really do enjoy seeing a different lens to, to what's happening out there in the world. So thanks so much for joining me today and, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Sounds good. And big thanks to you, Kevin, for this podcast. And you really do a lot for the community of us digital foresters and uh, yeah, awesome work by you. And, and thanks for having me on. Awesome. Good stuff. We'll talk soon.